Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 124. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that create electrolyte products that you can match to your individual sweat sodium concentration level. Everybody loses a different amount of sodium per liter of sweat. And when you also take into account that we all have different sweat rates and sweat rate also varies based on environmental conditions and intensity and so on, uh, it stands to reason that depending on the duration of a competition or a workout and the environmental conditions and as well as that individual set sodium content we have different sodium needs that need to be replenished precision hydration make it really easy for you to do that you can just go to their website and get a free hydration plan and that takes just a few minutes by answering uh, 10 questions you will get a good validated ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose and even better they will also give you a plan for how to use that information in racing based on your race goals that you put into that quiz you can get 15 percent off your electrolyte products with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com roca are the world leading manufacturers of wetsuits dry suits swimskins goggles high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses Roka started as a wetsuit company and a mission to create the world's fastest wetsuit. And today they have a lineup of uh, a number of different wetsuits from the flagship X2 model down to the entry level Comp2 model. But they are all made of extremely high quality materials. They all have the patented arms up technology and the design and development that has gone into each of the suits is second to none. So no matter which suit you get, what your budget level is and the ambition in terms of how many seconds you want to shave off your swim time or minutes, you will feel like you are in a really, really good and fast wetsuit. That's a guarantee. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now on today's first question, which is from uh, Marina in Finland. Uh, Marina is an athlete that I have coached for a long time in the past. And uh, Marina writes, hello, Michael. Thanks for a really interesting and informative podcast. I really appreciate the mix of guests and questions. Uh, is there a formula for calculating how long your running stride should be? There has got to be a difference between running stride length, depending on if you are, for example, 160 centimeters tall or 190 centimeters tall. When I run, I try to run with good posture and to not take too long strides. But according to my watch, the average stride length is about 93 to 95 centimeters during most of my endurance runs. Is that too long? Thank you for your help. Thank you for your question, Marina. Uh, the short answer is that there isn't any specific number for how long your stride length should be. Stride length can be seen as a function of your speed and your cadence. So stride length equals speed divided by cadence, or put another way, speed equals stride length times cadence. So in other words, if we keep cadence fixed, then the stride length increases and decreases when speed increases and decreases and on the other hand if we keep speed fixed so you're running at the same pace or the same speed then stride, stride length will decrease when cadence increases and stride length increases when cadence decreases 
So yes, things like height and your lower limb length will have an impact. Mobility will have an impact on how you prefer to balance your stride length and cadence uh, between each other at a given speed. Somebody with shorter legs, for example, will tend to have a higher cadence and lower stride length and vice versa. Also, less hip and hamstring mobility can mean that you end up relying on cadence a bit more as opposed to stride length to produce speed and vice versa. There's no right or wrong uh, other than if you visibly and clearly overstride, that is land with the foot significantly in front of your hip or your center of mass, then that is a sign that it makes sense to shorten your stride and increase your cadence instead to maintain the same speed but strike the ground closer to your center of mass. But that's something that you can't say based on a number. You need to say that based on visual inspection. So getting a video and and looking at the video of how you strike the ground. It is, however, very interesting to discuss the relationship between stride length, cadence and speed. If we first look at cadence and the range of cadences you you would typically see in runners of uh, different levels from beginner to world class, I would argue that the typical cadence range falls roughly between 160 and 200. Slower runners and to some extent runners that just have have unusually low cadences might be at the lower end of that range for their normal easy runs or endurance runs and the high end of that range would be intervals or shorter race distances for runners that are typically both fast in absolute uh, terms and also are on the high cadence end of the spectrum. Actually, personally, I remember doing some sprint interval training with 30 seconds all out followed by four and a half minutes easy jog. And those sprint intervals, I would tend to run at a cadence of 207, 208 average, I think. So that was at the really high end, but that is a bit of an extreme example with sprint interval training. Uh, But uh, you might notice here then that the extreme ends of the cadence spectrum, if we take 160 to 200 as a typical range here the the extreme ends are plus or minus 10 percent away from the midpoint of the spectrum so so that's not uh, roughly speaking that's not very very much really pace on the other hand varies a lot more so we can again go to even bigger extremes in terms of slower and faster but for argument's sake let's put the slow end of the pace range as a five hour marathon pace That means 7 minutes and 6 seconds per kilometer or 11 minutes and 26 seconds per mile. And for the fast end, why not put it at the current 5k world record pace, which is uh, 12.35 for 5,000 meters on the track by Joshua Cheptegei. And the pace there is 2 minutes 31 seconds per kilometer or 4 minutes and 1 second per mile. The midpoint of that range would then be 4 minutes and 45 seconds per kilometer or 7.38 per mile. So note here, this is the midpoint. This does not at all imply that this is the average pace that the average runner runs. Uh, Not at all. It's just the midpoint in the range that we have here established as looking at what are the paces at which runners of all abilities run. Uh, So the variation from the midpoint of 4.45 per kilometer or 7.38 per mile to those extreme ends is 47% compared to the 10% variation from the midpoint of the cadence extremes to the midpoint. 
So with this understanding, it is evident that the primary driver of variation in stride length is not cadence, but it is speed. So let's take the 5K world record uh, by Joshua Cheptegay at 12.35. That file is actually on Strava, so we can see that he ran at a cadence of 190 steps per minute. And then we can calculate based on his speed. Uh, so again, stride length being speed divided by cadence was two, uh, two, point, uh, two meters, nine centimeters, 2.09 meters uh, per, per stride. And uh, another example, uh, I'll take myself because my race pace cadence is similar to uh, Cheptegay's there, although I'm much, much slower. But uh, in my most recent half Ironman, for example, my half marathon time was 117.40 something at a cadence of 188. So just two steps per minute less than uh, Cheptegay. And that gave me a stride length of 1.42 meters compared to the 2.09 for Cheptegay in the 5K world record. So that's more than 60 centimeters of difference in stride length despite essentially the same cadence. That's how much speed has an impact on stride length. So again, the difference in speed there would be Cheptegay's 2.31 in the 5K world record versus my uh, 3.44 per kilometer in the half Ironman. That being said, somebody that is on the more beginner or maybe lower intermediate uh, side of their athlete development arc they will probably increase their cadence a bit with training and with getting fit fitter but as you get to kind of a solid intermediate fitness level your cadence will by and large stay pretty stag stagnant for any given effort that doesn't mean that it's always the same but for your endurance runs it will al always be almost the same for your threshold runs it will always be almost the same for your 5k races it will always be almost the same as you reach that sort of level i would say that uh, that in a race effort in a let's say a half marathon you will always be within two to three steps per minute as you get to this kind of solid intermediate level uh, the cadence will not vary any more than two to three steps per minute and so maybe one to two steps per minute around a certain average and uh, and the reason if you work hard and get faster the reason for the increase in speed is therefore not your that your cadence increased because it didn't but it's that your stride length increased this is not a conscious process. You're not trying to take longer steps because then if you try that consciously, then probably what will happen is that you will tire quicker or your cadence will get lower. But it just happens as you get fitter. That, that is the process of training. So if you have an endurance pace right now of, uh, let's say, 6 minutes, 15 seconds per kilometer, so that is 10.03 mile pace, and your cadence is 170 steps per minute, that uh, that translates to 94 centimeters of stride length. Uh, so that is right in the range where you say you are currently. But but let's say you get fitter and at that same endurance effort and the same cadence of 170, you now run in six minutes flat pace or 9.39 per uh, mile. So you improve by 15 seconds per kilometer or 24 seconds per mile then that's because your stride length is now 98 centimeters uh, instead of 94. Again, this is not because of trying to take longer steps actively. It's because your body gets fitter and can produce more power during the ground contact to propel you further with each step. But because you're fitter, it doesn't feel as if you're producing more power. You just are. 
So what's the take-home message of all of this? Well, first, you can safely ignore the number that your stride length is. It really is quite irrelevant. Uh, it's a reflection of your speed and, and also the cadence, of course. But where you fall on that stride length versus cadence um, balance, it, that's that's something that is highly personal. It depends on things like your, your height and, and your lower limb length and, and, and mobility, as I said. But there's no right or wrong answer other than, uh, than as I said, don't overstride. But I can assure you, for example, personally, I had no clue what my own typical stride length was before I started doing the calculations uh, for the examples in this answer. And the second take-home message is uh, do watch out for overstriding. That is something that you can do with visual inspection. So have somebody film you and analyze the video. If you're not sure whether you're overstriding or not, you can go to a YouTube video I'll link to in the episode description with James Dunn, past guest on the podcast, by the way. That video is called What is Overstriding? Distance Running versus Sprint Technique, and it has some good examples. Or just send me the video, you know, how to reach me. So so that's also good. And uh, yeah, that one more thing related listening to this episode is an interview I did with uh, Isi Moore, uh, which is called Running Biomechanics, Economy and Training Load. And it was episode number 241. We do talk quite a bit about cadence and training cadence in that interview. So it might be interesting for you to listen to. All right. Thank you for your question and hope everything is going well with your training. The next question, another one from uh, a compatriot in Finland. This one is from uh, Timo who writes, uh, Hi, your podcast is uh, one of the ones that I've been listening to the longest. Thank you for the great content. During a cross-country skiing session, I started thinking about how I should incorporate cross-country skiing into my training program so that it would be beneficial not just for mental health and variation. During the last few weeks, uh, I've uh, changed my normal 10-hour training weeks to almost eight hours of skiing and just one to two harder interval sessions uh, on the indoor bike trainer. I also have a question about uh, heart rate zones. I haven't done any testing for my, my skiing heart rate thresholds, and I don't know how they relate to my, my heart rate zones in running or cycling. I would guess that perhaps since I'm using more muscle mass in skiing, I would have higher heart rate thresholds and higher maximum heart rate. On the other hand, my heart rate zones probably depends on my skiing technique as well and might move a bit throughout the short cross-country ski season. So with that, am I doing things terribly wrong if I just take my heart rate zones from cycling? I'm wondering if, because cycling is my main sport is there even any difference in how i raise my heart rate to those heart rate zones that are determined based on my cycling thank you timo all right thank you for your question uh, timo let's first discuss how cross-country skiing can be incorporated in a, an endurance athlete's training repertoire during the winter base training so to say so i think that cross-country skiing is a fantastic diverse option for adding into your cycling or triathlon training during the winter in the general preparation phase in regions like southern finland where i assume that you live so specifically in southern finland because most people live there the season is short uh, so as you can as you say you can incorporate it into your training in such a way that you get a lot of positives while minimizing the negatives 
uh, the potential negatives there being that uh, while cross-country skiing is not a negative at all, but it is the uh, the lesser focus on your main sport, so cycling in your case, or swimming, biking, and running for a triathlete. So in other words, losing specificity. But again, with the season being very short where you are for cross-country skiing, you you don't have that much time to really lose all that much. For a triathlete, if we generalize this question a little bit so that triathletes listening also get get something specific out of it, because I know that there are probably quite a few that have the same question, I would say that the most important discipline to maintain a little bit during a cross-country, a cross-country skiing focus period is to maintain the swim. The run would be the second most important and the bike would be the least important because it's less technical and exercise economy isn't that big a factor as it is in swimming and running. But for you, Timo, uh, with cycling being your main discipline, what you are doing now with two interval workouts on the bike per week and then mostly cross-country skiing sounds perfectly reasonable and like a good approach. To what extent uh, one can replace cycling or just swim bike run training in general with cross-country skiing would come down in my opinion primarily to the athlete's goals and their ability level so for a pro athlete or maybe an age grouper with the goal of placing well in world championships or similar ambitious high-flying goals then while you can definitely replace some of your swim bike run training or just bike training with cross-country skiing, I personally wouldn't recommend replacing as much as 80% of it if you have those sorts of ambitious goals. Sure, for a limited period, maybe a month or so, you could do up to 50%, and I'm shooting from the hip here a bit with the numbers, but just to give you sort of a bit of an insight into how I'm thinking here and the proportions of how much you, I would recommend somebody does depending on their on what their goals are, as I said. If your season is two months long and you want to be doing cross-country skiing for two months, then maybe maybe not 50% for two months. That might be too much, but 30% for too much might be possible. But after that, you would probably have to get more specific and really work on your bike or, in the case of a triathlete, on your swim and bike and run. Uh, because when somebody is already highly trained, then the transfer effect between different endurance modalities is not going to be anywhere near as strong as for a more beginner athlete. On the other hand, if you do fall more on the beginner or intermediate end of the spectrum, then in most cases you could for a one to two month period do a large majority of your training as cross-country skiing. Uh, although goals would still come in the discussion here and potentially change the verdict a little bit, but but if you're smart with your cross-country ski training and the little bit of maintenance training that you're doing in your main endurance sport, then then I think that it's absolutely feasible to do a two-month period with a big focus on cross-country skiing uh, in that general preparation phase during winter. For triathletes, again, generalizing the question a little bit, I would say that if you normally swim three times per week or, or more, then try to still swim twice per week. And if you normally swim twice, then try to swim at least once per week. Also, triathletes should try to run at least once per week to maintain resilience and bone and joint integrity and just simply make it easier to get back to running without injury later on. And within that, again, triathlon framework, I would say that when you swim, make it a hard swim or include a hard main set, I should say. And when you run, include a hard main set. 
And then one, one of your cross-country skiing workouts can also include hard main set. And then the rest of the skiing can be just steady endurance, so two-like skiing. Uh, so in other words, it's best to do most of the hard work in the specific disciplines that you're training for. And uh, you're already doing that, Timo, by doing your two weekly bike workouts where you're doing intervals. So so it sounds like you're doing it spot on. I see no reason at all to change that. And the only thing I would add is maybe also add some uh, one of your do one of your hard make one of your cross country skiing days a hard day where you do some form of intensity. Then regarding your question on heart rate zones, as you say in cross country skiing you are using a large proportion of your total muscle mass, larger than in biking and running. So heart rate is probably going to be a bit higher at least compared to the bike, but maybe even compared to the run. I must say, I'm not entirely sure, but it could be. You could test this, of course, and uh, to do that, just find maybe find a hill, ideally, that takes you three to four minutes to get up and just go all out, smash it, and see what your max heart rate is at the end. And then you could plug that max heart rate into a training zones calculator uh, and get an estimate for your training zones but as cross-country skiing is a different sport with differences in movement patterns compared to cycling and running, differences in muscle recruitment and economy, I would probably look for a calculator or a table that is made specifically for cross-country skiing rather than just plug it into a running or cycling calculator. So maybe some uh, something like Olympiatop and the Norwegian uh, Olympic Committee, they might have some, some resources like that online. I, I'm not entirely sure. But that is one option to to use heart rate, to establish heart rate zones for cross-country skiing separately. I don't think that you should use your bike heart rate zones or for triathlete, for that matter, even your run heart rate zones. Because as you say, technique, and as I said, movement patterns, muscle recruitment will be different so while they might be the same they might also be different i would say that a better approach then is to follow rpe so if you have been in endurance sports for a little while you've already calibrated your body to know what a recovery effort feels like what an endurance effort feels like what tempo threshold high intensity intervals etc feels like so if most of your training will be steady endurance training anyway then you only have maybe one additional workout per week where you really need to to think and and feel what, how hard you should be going so so it's not that that difficult and for the endurance training you can always use the talk test which i have talked about many times before but put simply just try to speak a short paragraph or a couple of sentences and see if you can do that without too much huffing and puffing and if you manage that then you're probably on that steady endurance in that steady endurance zone so then you're doing good of course you don't have to be just uh, gliding along and not doing anything but uh, but the talk test will just make sure that you're on the right side of that that first threshold the first ventilatory threshold or lactate threshold for the more intense skiing you're doing you can think about roughly a six to seven out of ten effort when you're doing like a tempo uh, tempo workout or a threshold workout might be a seven to eight out of ten and interval work about threshold would be a nine out of ten or or eight to ten out of ten if you want to expand that range a little bit so so in summary i think that for most amateur athletes 
exchanging some, even most of their endurance training for cross-country skiing is totally fine for a limited time period, like one to two months during general preparation. The longer the period, the more you do want to still keep some of your main sport or sports in there. And in terms of heart rate, uh, either do a specific lab test, obviously, but it might be overkill for a short season. So you could also find your maximum heart rate and use a calculator developed for skiing. Or perhaps my most recommended option that I would recommend most amateur athletes do would be to for this period of cross-country skiing, use RPE, use the calibration you've done through your cycling or other endurance training, and uh, and just transfer that into the efforts that you want to feel during your cross-country skiing workouts. By the way, one thought just popped into my head, and it is about how different levels of athletes with different goals can have a different sort of uh, a different amount of cross-training, so to say, non-specific training in in their yearly planning and still do well. And there are some exceptions to what I said that the pro athletes that have really specific ambitious goals or age groupers with really specific ambitious goals need to do less of the other stuff and more of the specific stuff. So I was just thinking about uh, about Kilian Journey, for example, and how he does ski mountaineering for four, five, five months out of the year and then only running for the seven months of the year remaining. However long, however long it is, I'm not exactly sure, might be four and eight. Either way, there is a long period of the year, typically there used to be anyway, when he was doing only ski mountaineering and no running for months. And then he would run for two weeks and come and crush the first uh, ultra trail races of, of the year and just sweep the floor with most people anyway. So so that is definitely a bit of an exception to the rule. Killian is maybe not the best example because he's clearly physically just at a different level than anybody else so he can kind of do whatever he wants to do and and it really doesn't make a difference but but i do think that uh, there is something else to this as well rather than just exceptional physical talent and that is that killian has 20 years or more of high volume of run training in his body and and i would say that this this is something that also professional athletes that are not that are are not superior to their peers can use so somebody a 39 year old long distance triathlete who has been doing triathlon for 20 years or more and has all of that base they can probably get away with two months where they don't do too much uh, specific swim bike and run training whereas a similar level of professional athlete but that is 25 years and has only been in sport for five years they probably should not spend two months doing something else than swim bike and good for them because they just don't have that background of thousands upon thousands of hours in swimming, biking and running or cycling if cycling is your sport. So I think, uh, yeah, that that's another aspect, another sort of dimension to the whole who can sp- take more time off their main sport and do some cross training, the experience and the amount of historical miles or hours that you have in your body. Uh, one more thought on this question. I did interview the uh, the national team coach of Norway's cross-country skiing team, uh, Erik Mjernossum, in episode 245. So check that out if you're a cross-country skiing fan, and I'll link to it in the show notes as well. And that's it for today's Q&A. Keep sending in questions uh, for future episodes, and I'll be happy to uh, to put them in the in the backlog and hopefully answer them on a future Q&A. 
If you're interested in coaching or training plans, check out scientifictriathlon.com. We would love to help you achieve your training and racing goals in 2021. And uh, I think we have something for everybody with the different levels of uh, services and products available there. Big thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your electrolyte order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. They also have thermal wetsuits if you are thinking of getting into the open water uh, for some early season swimming. So that's an interesting option, especially with pools being closed. And you can get 20% off your entire Roka order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.